Well, good evening once again. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. Now in our study in the book of Romans, we find ourselves in a section where Paul, uh, who is acting like a prosecuting attorney, wants to show that the whole world apart from Christ stands condemned before God. In other words, guilty and hell-bound. He does this because he knows that before a person will see their need for a Savior, they must first be made to see themselves as guilty sinners. And so he starts in verse 18 to prove that the pagan is condemned before God, before moving to the moralist, and then finally to the religionist. And this will lead to Paul's final charge in his closing argument, if you will, the whole world apart from Christ is guilty before God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We'll get to that. When we get to chapter 3. I'll just give you a little preview. The glory of God is his sinless perfection. We would all say we fall short of sinless perfection. Therefore, we're all guilty before God. Now, to many, this seems blatantly unfair that God would judge and send people to hell who have never heard the gospel. But in verses 19 and 20 of Romans 1, Paul answers that accusation. Let's read verses 19 and 20 again. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, even people who have never had the gospel preached to them have had the knowledge of God revealed to them through the creation. Again, this is called natural or general revelation which is God's revelation of himself in creation. As we've read numerous times, Psalm 19, verses 1 to 3, I'll just paraphrase it. The creation is, is testifying to the existence of God. It's speaking universal language that every person on planet Earth understands. Again, you cannot have a creation without a creator. Any more than you can have a painting without a painter or a sculpture without a sculptor. God made us intelligent enough to realize that you have to, and we're going to talk about this more tonight. The creation declares the glory of God. Now, he's telling us that although, Paul is telling us that although natural revelation is incomplete in its revelation of God, in other words, it doesn't really tell us anything about him personally. It doesn't give us any specifics. It doesn't tell us, you know, we look at the creation, no God is, exists. He's powerful, that's obvious. The universe is gigantic. He's a God that loves beauty and order and color because it's everywhere. But we don't know his name from creation. We don't know what he's like. We don't know what he hates, what he loves. We don't really know anything about him personally by looking at the creation. However, Paul tells us that the... Um, Creation is such a clear revelation of God's existence that anybody who looks at the creation 
and rejects the existence of God is without excuse and will be held accountable on the day of judgment. Now, we've used this truth to kind of springboard into a parallel study, which we'll finish next week. But uh, use this truth that the creation declares the glory of God, that the creation bears witness to his existence. We've used it to kind of springboard into a parallel study on how we can know exactly how the creation testifies to the existence of God. And so last time we started looking at three reasons or proofs or arguments from creation that proves the existence of God. And again, these are taken from Norm Geisler's series, 12 Points That Prove Christianity is True. Here's the three reasons. The cosmological reason, the teleological reason, and the moral reason. Now last week we looked at the cosmological reason for the existence of God, and then we started looking at the teleological reason, but just by way of quick review. We looked at the cosmological reason last week. The word cosmological comes from the Greek word cosmos, or as we would say, cosmos, which is the study of the universe. The cosmological reason or argument for the existence of God has two parts to it. First of all, everything that had a beginning had a cause. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. Last week we proved or we showed that the physical universe had a beginning. It's not eternal as scientists once thought uh, it was or that it was back then. Um, and that led to the second part of the argument. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe had a cause. Look, as we said last time, either the first verse in the Bible is true. In the beginning, God, the divine cause, created everything. Or else we are left with the absurd premise upon which evolution is built, that in the beginning, everything came from nothing all by itself. Now, when scientists realized the universe was going to have an end, which again meant that it had to have a beginning, they had to come up with another explanation for the existence of the universe since they couldn't any longer claim it was eternal. They built big enough telescopes to look far enough into the universe to see that stars are dying, galaxies are dying. The universe is growing old and it's wearing out and it's dying. It's called entropy. So scientists now couldn't say any longer that the universe was eternal. In other words, it never had a beginning. If it's going to have an end, it had to have a beginning. And since they now had evidence that it had to have a beginning, that meant it had to have a beginning cause. Of course, they rejected God as the cause. <clears throat> Not all of them, but most. They rejected God as the cause, which meant they had to invent another cause. So they came up with the Big Bang Theory. And so, as we said last time for the atheists, nobody times nothing equals everything. And they claim you're a fool for believing in God. That brought us to the teleological reason for the existence of God, which we started last week. This is basically the argument from design. From design. The teleological reason argues that everything in the natural realm that demonstrates design had to have a designer and therefore a maker or a creator. The only thing we need to determine is 
Does the universe in general, and life in particular, demonstrate design? Last week we started with, with the last one first. Life demonstrates complex design. The more science looks at life, the more complex they realize it is. You realize that back in Darwin's day, scientists believed that the human cell was no more complex than a ping pong ball. But since the development of the electron microscope, which allows them to see deeply into the cell and study the DNA, scientists now realize that the human cell is incredibly complex. As we said last time, the human body is made up of trillions of cells. If you take one of those, just one, the amount of digitally coded genetic information has been estimated to fill at least 1,000 books of 500 pages each. That's a lot of information. And that's just in one cell. Times that by several trillion. That's the amount of genetic information coded into our entire bodies. Staggering amount of information. Where did all this digitally coded genetic, genetic information come from? Well, evolutionists say it evolved. But that information is the software. It's the operating system, if you will, of the cell. As we said last time, the operating system of, operating system of a computer has to be written and installed first before the computer can function. You can build a computer and leave it sit for a billion years, and it will never evolve the software necessary to run it itself. The same is true with cells, the cells of all living things, especially human beings. Look, cells are made up of atoms, right? The eminent atheistic now, not a Christian, the eminent atheistic theoretical physicist, cosmologist, and astrobiologist of Arizona State University, Paul Davies, said, and I quote, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software, end quote. Even atheists realize, not that, I'm not saying they, they become believers in Jesus Christ. As we're going to see tonight, and as I did some study this week, you're going to, you would be shocked to know how many scientists are being compelled by the evidence, as science evolves, becomes more sophisticated, their knowledge of human anatomy and cells and so on, as that has increased Many have been forced to acknowledge this couldn't happen by accident. We'll talk more about that tonight. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, Oxford Uni University professor Richard Dawkins, a leading evolutionist, calls biology, I'm quoting, the study of complicated things that gives the appearance, quote unquote, of having been designed for a purpose. It's amazing how smart people can be dumb when they refuse to accept where the evidence points. It looks like there's a designer, but we know that's not possible. This is why Revelation, excuse me, stuck in Revelation still. This is why Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, listen, 
who suppress the truth of God in their desire to live unrighteously. And I would say wanting to live without God as an atheist, that's wanting to live an unrighteous life. And yet even Richard Dawkins admits that every cell contains in its nucleus, I'm quoting him, a digitally coded database larger than all 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica put together, end quote. Now, would anybody in their right mind believe that the 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica resulted from an explosion in a printing shop? <laughs> think about that. We laugh, but think about it for a second. Say you piled up gallons of ink, reams of paper, some cardboard, and you blew it all up. And when the smoke cleared, there was a beautifully formed, fully complete, 30-volume edition of Cyclopedia Britannica with all the words and letters in the right spots, everything perfect. We laugh because we know that's absurd. And yet that's what they're believing about where we came from. Even though the cell is loaded with digitally coded information, all perfect to make life possible in every cell. And yet we're supposed to believe it all happened 18 billion years ago with a big bang. And again, that's how ridiculous it is to believe that there is no intelligence, that there is no intelligence behind the complexity we see even, uh, even in simple life on the earth. According to Carl Sagan, the human brain, now not just the cell, he's going for the whole brain now. According to Sagan, the human brain has enough genetic information that if spelled out in English would fill the Library of Congress, which in his day was roughly 20 million volumes. I checked, today it's over 51 million. But in his day, he said, and he was an atheist, that the human brain has enough genetic information that if spelled out in English would fill the Library of Congress 20 million volumes. And yet, before he died, he and other biological evolutionists even today continue to tell us that all of this happened through random forces, genetic accidents, and there's mutations, and natural processes without any intelligent intervention or design. Some years ago, Carl Sagan was receiving a lot of money from the federal government for his SETI project. SETI is an acronym in a sense for Search for Extra, uh, extra uh, Terrestrial Intelligence, SETI. The SETI project used radio telescopes to listen for radio waves coming from outer space to try and determine if there was intelligent life out there uh, trying to communicate with us. The main criterion was that the radio waves had to have order. They had to have a pattern to them to prove intelligent life was trying to communicate to us. They searched for years and found nothing. One day, Dr. A.E. Wildersmith, he's with the Lord now, but he knew Carl Sagan. They, they were colleagues. One day, Dr. A.E. Wildersmith, a devout Christian and brilliant man with several earned PhDs. 
he was a favorite speaker among Calvaries when he was alive. All the bigger Calvaries had him come out and speak. Brilliant guy. I've listened to him on uh, cassette tape. <laughs> Going back a few years. Uh, when he was alive, that's what we had, cassette tapes. And he said to Sagan, I'm quoting, Carl, get rid of your radio telescope and come with me into the laboratory and look through the electron microscope and I'll show you a digital code on the helix of DNA that is ordered and proves that there is outside intelligence that created life on the earth. He said Carl Sagan refused to look into the microscope. Peter talks about those people who are willingly ignorant. In a book published near the end of his life, Sagan wrote this, and I quote, Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping dark cosmos. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves, end quote. What he was worried about was nuclear annihilation. He talked about that a lot. I mean, it's tragic that Sagan looked into the creation and refused to see the hand of the Creator. And as such, life became meaningless to him, and he died in utter despair without hope of anything more than the physical universe and this physical life. I mean, if he had only looked into that microscope, at the incredible complexity in the human cell, maybe, just maybe, his eyes would have been opened at last to the design that unmistakably points to the Creator. Michael Behe, in his book, Darwin's Black Box, destroys Darwinian evolution by documenting the incomprehensible complexity of life at its most basic chemical cellular, cellular level. He said, and I quote, Evolution cannot explain the origin of the complex uh, uh, biochemical structures that undergird life. It doesn't even try. The conclusion of intelligent design flows naturally from the data itself, not from sacred books or sectarian beliefs, unquote. What is he saying? He's saying science has advanced to the place we don't even need the Bible to tell us that God exists. Or an atheist to tell us he doesn't exist. Science has proven that God is real. We, I think he was a Christian. But we don't need the Bible to tell us anymore. It's not even a matter of faith that God exists. Science has proven God exists. Even though our faith is always proven in our hearts that he exists. But he said, and I'm quoting, uh, uh, and I'm uh, referencing him, he said, a single cell from a human being could have 100,000 molecules and 10,000 intricately interrelated chemo chemical reactions going on at one time. Now listen, these are all necessary and dependent upon each other to make life possible. His conclusion, cells couldn't arise by chance. Michael Behe has shown that there is such a thing as irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity in a cell. 
using a mouse trap as an illustration. Uh, here's how he framed the uh, illustration. He said, you can make a mouse trap very complex if you want to, but you can only reduce it down to its basic parts. At one point, you reach irreducible complexity. What does that mean? I think he said that the simplest mousetrap you could uh, build has to have five parts to it. And if that mousetrap is going to work, all five parts have to then be present. You've reached irreducible complexity. You can't reduce it down any further or else it won't work. Now, he used that illustration with regard to cells, human cells, because that's what he was talking about. But any cell will do, right? He said that you have to have the basic parts of a cell all there simultaneously, or the cell, listen, not only will not work, it can't exist. These basic components of a cell can't evolve separately. They have to all be present together at the same time. Back in 1996, I was at a Bible conference where Dr. John MacArthur was speaking. I heard this from his own mouth. He told this story. I'll share it with you. He said, and I quote, I received a call one day from a man named Dr. Richard Lumsden. Dr. Lumsden was the chairman of the science department at Tulane University. He was a renowned microbiologist who does electron microscopy and looks in there and sees DNA strips and studies chromosomes. His premier work had been on cell membranes. Every cell has a membrane, and he was struggling professionally with that issue as a staunch evolutionist because there is no way the membrane could evolve to keep the cell contained. They would have had to come into existence simultaneously, and there was no way that that could have happened scientifically by using evolution as an explanation, and so he was struggling. As a completely secular humanist, he was teaching cl his classes in the graduate school of Tulane, and a Christian girl came up, uh, came up to him after class, and uh, uh, he said, she asked me, Dr. Lumsden, may I talk to you and ask you some questions? He said, of course. And uh, he said, she asked me all the standard questions that Christians ask evolutionists. I'd heard them on other occasions, and I gave her the standard answers, uh, and she gave me a brief comment after, comment after each one, and then thanked me and left. And when she walked away, he said, all I heard was the echo of my own stupidity. And I said to myself, if you believe what you just told that girl, you're an idiot. I went home that day, and I got a Bible. And in a matter of a few weeks, I committed my life to Jesus Christ, and I became a creationist. Not only a creationist, I became a six-day creationist. It was the only thing that made sense scientifically to me. I was immediately terminated at the university. I lost my job and my career. MacArthur says this was a Harvard-educated man. I had to reconstruct my worldview. I started a business and for the next five years made my living from this business while I went back through everything I had ever studied scientifically in the light of what I knew about the Creator. 
MacArthur said at the end of five years, he offered himself to the Institute of Creation Research in San Diego and became the most formidable debater against evolutionists across America on university campuses until they wouldn't debate him anymore. <laughs> then he came to teach at the Master's Seminary until he retired, end quote. And so, guys, the first part of the teleological argument, which again proves the existence of God, says that life demonstrates complex design, which means it had to have a designer and creator. Okay? But what about the universe? That's the second part of this argument. Well, the universe demonstrates complex design as well. Look, no principle in modern science has given more impetus to the belief that there must be an intelligent creator than the anthropic principle. I spent a lot of the afternoon reading what scientists, some secular, some Christian, uh, had to say about the anthropic principle. I didn't realize how powerful an argument this was for our creator. Let me just set it up by saying this. Back in 1997, a movie came out starring Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. It was called Contact. Contact. The novel from which the movie was taken was written by none other than Carl Sagan. The main thought or theme of the movie was repeated three times in the movie. If there isn't intelligent life out there, then there is a lot of wasted space in the universe. Now that sounds logical, given the incredible size of the universe. But the anthropic principle proves that that statement is not true. The anthropic principle demonstrates that for life on Earth to be possible, listen, the universe needed to be exactly the size that it is. Sounds, you mean to tell me, for life to be possible on this little speck in the cosmos, the universe had to be that big? I'm not a scientist, but that's what they're saying. That's what the people that study these things for a living, the astrophysicists and so on, they're saying that for life to exist on planet Earth, Earth the universe had to be this big. Robert Jastrow, we quoted him last week, said, and I quote, the anthropic principle is the most interesting development, <laughs> I love this, next to the proof of the creation. Sounds like Jastro got saved. <laughs> and it's even more interesting because it seems to say that science itself has proven as a hard fact that the universe was made, was designed for man to live in. It is a very theistic result. What is the anthropic principle? The anthropic principle says the universe has been finely tuned precisely tweaked, if you will, to support life here on Earth. Jeff Miller, Ph.D., said, and I quote, the anthropic principle in cosmology states that the universe as a whole appears to have been designed for humans to inhabit it. The existence of a universe designer still stands as the most logical explanation for its origin. And the naturalistic community, these are the evolutionists that believe everything came about through natural processes without any divine or supernatural input from a creator. But even they are being forced to concede 
on this point. He said, the existence of a universe designer still stands as the most logical explanation for its origin, and the naturalistic community cannot help but concede it, end quote. In the words of Princeton professor emeritus and, the and theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson, he said, and I quote, as we look into the universe and identify the many accidents, see, they just won't acknowledge that it was by design, even though it's staring them right in the face. They're still calling it accidents, you know? As we look into the universe and identify the many accidents of physics and astronomy that have worked together to our benefit, it almost seems as if the universe must, in some sense, have known that we were coming. Bottom line, the universe appears to be designed for us to live in it, end quote. Give you one more. According to Tim Folger, writing in Discovery Magazine, he said, and I quote, the idea that the universe was made just for us, known as the anthropic principle, debuted in 1973. Since then, the mountain of evidence supporting the principle has drastically grown, end quote. Well, he goes on. I'm just going to stop it there. For example, and I'm just going to give you a few. Literally, we could spend you know, all night and beyond, which we're not going to pulling out these, these principles that prove the universe had a creator because you can't make sense of this by just accidents and a big explosion uh, which brought everything into existence. Here are some of the things that the anthropic principle says proves God exists. All right, I'll just give you some. All right, number one. Oxygen comprises 21% of the atmosphere. If it were 25%, spontaneous fires would break out. If it were 15%, we'd suffocate. In other words, 21% is exactly what we need, and it's exactly what we have. Number two, the gravitational force. If it were altered by one part in 10 to the 40th power, that's a one with 40 zeros after it. You can't even believe how big a number that is. If the gravitational force was altered by one part in 10 to the 40th power, our sun would not exist. The moon would crash into the earth or fly off into space. That is an incredibly minute change in the gravitational force which would prohibit life on this planet. Number three, the centrifugal force did not if the centrifugal force did not precisely balance the gravitational force, nothing would be held in orbit and the planets would crash into each other. Number four, the universe is expanding. This is something. If it were expanding at a rate one millionth slower, get your mind around that. The universe is expanding. If it was expanding at a rate of one millionth slower, than it is now, the temperature on Earth would be 10,000 degrees. The average distance between stars in our galaxy, which contains roughly 300 to 400 billion stars, is 30 trillion miles. That's the distance on the average between stars. 30 trillion miles. The space shuttle travels at 17,000 miles an hour, or 5 miles per second. 
At that speed, it would take over 1.7 billion years to travel from one star to another in our galaxy. If the distance between those stars were altered slightly, the orbits would become erratic and extreme, and extreme temperature variations would occur here on Earth, making life impossible. When I say finely tweaked, you, you're getting the idea what I'm talking about. Number six, any one of the laws of physics can be described as a function of the velocity of light. Therefore, even the slightest variations in the speed of light would alter all the other constants uh, and negate the possibility of life here on Earth. Number seven, if Jupiter wasn't the size it is or in its current orbit, uh, life on Earth probably wouldn't be possible. You see, because Jupiter is so big, it acts like a cosmic vacuum cleaner. Its gravitational force is so strong that all the asteroids and other space junk that could slam into the Earth get sucked into Jupiter. Number eight, the thickness of the Earth's crust is just right to support life. Number nine, the rotation of the Earth is just right, 24 hours. If it were faster, say 15 hours, the wind velocities along the surface of the Earth would be too great. If it were slower, say 36 hours, the temperature of the Earth would be too hot during the day and too cold at night for us to survive. I'll give you two more. There's many others we could look at. Some of them get very technical and you'd almost have to be, uh, I didn't understand, but you'd have to be a scientist to kind of understand where they're coming from. I'm just going to try to keep it simple. I'll give you a couple more. The axial tilt of the Earth is exactly what it needs to be for life to be possible on this planet, 23 and a half degrees. And number 11, God, is, God has even designed lightning for a purpose and precisely regulates it. If the atmospheric discharge rate was greater, there would be too much fire destruction. If it were less, there would be too little nitrogen fixing in the soil. And guys, we could go on and on, but I think you get the picture. Let me quote Professor Jeff Miller one last time. He concludes, and he's the one who wrote this massive article I was reading that quotes all these other evolutionists and naturalists and scientists that are being forced. I'm not saying they're becoming evangelical Christians, but they're being forced to concede. You know, in the old days, again, uh, I studied this years ago, uh, and uh, in, in Darwin's day, they didn't believe the cell was very complex at all. Now they are, have been forced to realize, no, the cell is so complex, it couldn't have come about through random processes, processes, right? Same with the universe. Miller concludes, and I quote, Truly the universe is replete with decisive evidence of design so much so that even atheists cannot help but concede that truth the universe seems to have resulted in it being custom tailored fine-tuned he said for humans but how can there be fine-tuning if there if no one exists to tune it in the first place how can the universe be custom tailored if there be no tailor 
The anthropic principle defined by cosmologists is a blatant admission by the naturalistic community. These are the evolutionists, many of them atheists. It's a blatant admission by the naturalistic community that theists have been right all along, we who believe in God. The universe is replete with evidences of design. If one is to be rational, drawing appropriate conclusions from the evidence, he must recognize that there are implications to realizing that the universe is finely tuned and tailor-made. The design in the universe demands the existence of a universal designer and further, the universe was designed specifically with humans in mind, end quote. When Peter says that our faith is not built on wishful thinking, but upon many infallible proofs, he was ahead of his time. That was the Holy Spirit inspiring him to give us those words. Guys, in light of the anthropic principle, I haven't got enough faith to be an atheist. I'll just be honest. The universe demonstrates such precision and intricate design. Listen, it has been so finely tweaked to support life here on the earth that there is absolutely no other explanation than what the Bible says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as the psalmist said in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse of the universe shows his craftsmanship. His craftsmanship. Now, we're a little early tonight. I didn't um, want to start, though, the, the um, next and final reason that we know how the universe uh, points to the existence of God. Uh, next time, we'll look at the moral argument for the existence of God. We'll look at this next time because it goes along with the three points that we've looked at the cosmological reason, teleological, and then the moral reason. That all point, all the creation, right? How it points to the existence of God. Um, we'll, we'll look at it next time, but I'm going to save a chunk of it for chapter 2. In fact, we'll open with by quoting chapter 2. And how God has coded into each one of our hearts um, the knowledge of right and wrong. He says... He has written his laws in our hearts and has given us a century called the conscience that warns us when we have stepped over the line into sin. We'll, we'll talk about that more next time. It's called the moral argument for the existence of God. But uh, let me just say this to set it up. If we're just the result of chemical processes and chemicals are amoral, amoral, then where did morality come from? Evolution can't explain it, but the Bible can and does. And it becomes another powerful evidence for the existence of God. So next time we'll wrap it up and continue on. I mean, I just felt that we needed to focus on verses 19 and 20 for a little bit. The creation declares the glory of God so that People who look at the creation and reject the existence of God, Paul said, God will hold them accountable on the day of judgment. They have no excuse. Okay, we believe that. But how exactly 
does that work? How exactly does the creation declare God's existence? Well, we have been looking at just how. And isn't it wonderful that as Daniel said uh, in his uh, book, as he was writing uh, the end of it, and the Lord had spoken to Daniel about a lot of things. At one point, he's overwhelmed by the just the, the sheer... Um, it was just taken with all this prophecy that he said, God, what does it mean? And what did the Lord say? Daniel, write it down, close the book, go your way. It's not for you. In the last days, knowledge will increase. People will be going to and fro about the face of the earth, and then they are going to understand. We are living at a time when God has expanded human knowledge. Now, there's a downside. The smarter that man gets, the more he thinks he's God. That's the problem, right? But you, if you honestly look at the creation, I think it was uh, Sir Isaac Newton. He was a believer in Jesus Christ. And he believed God made everything. So he started to study the creation to learn more about God. I mean, if you, the difference, guys, between intelligence and wisdom is this. Intelligence is the accumulation of information. Wisdom is the proper application of that information. An evolutionist can have several PhDs, be a brilliant man or woman. But if they don't let the, the creation, what we would call the creation, point them to God, they're fools. That's why Proverbs, you can be smart, but a fool. It's a lot of young people. Young people can be smart. They're seldom wise. It takes time to take what you know and let it point you in the right direction. Any scientist, brilliant as they could be, who studies all their life, like a Carl Sagan or many other, Richard Dawkins, and they know the natural world more than any of us will ever know it because they've studied it all their life brilliant guys but so many of them don't allow the natural realm to point them to a creator and so they're fools but we are living at a time when god has allowed us when i say us i mean mankind in general to progress to a point scientifically intellectually biologically cells and so on where this generation, and coupled with the fact we can have access, or we do have access, to all the Bibles we want. We realize that there was a time in the church's history when all Bibles were handwritten, before the printing press, of course. They were so expensive to reproduce, a church would often have one Bible sitting on the pulpit, chained to the pulpit, so no one would take it, and people had to come to the church and read the Bible there in the pulpit. We have no excuse for not knowing God's Word and believing in God. This generation, I'm convinced, is going to be held more accountable by God than any other. Because of this generation, having all the advancements we have, all the benefits of all the information we can acquire on TV and Internet, books, 
and so on. And if this generation has all this input, speaking of the existence of God and turns a blind, blind eye to God and says he doesn't exist, I would not want to be in their shoes on the day of judgment. That's all I can say. Because everything around us points to the existence of God. So next time we'll continue one more lesson, and then we'll move on in Romans 1. There's some interesting things coming. When I say interesting, life-shattering, uh, life-altering. Well, the whole Bible. But Romans is really something. Especially this section from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 21, or 20, where Paul is laying out the case against mankind that we're all guilty sinners. And so it's very powerful, life-changing. Forces people to look at themselves. And we'll talk about that more as we continue on, but we got some heavy stuff coming. So um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. That is special revelation, and we can have as many Bibles as we want. So thank you for that. Of course, with knowledge comes responsibility. So give us grace, Lord, as we read your word, that you would open our understanding to everything you've said in your word and give us the grace to apply these things in our lives. But even those who do not have a Bible and have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, as they look into the creation, they, well, they know, because you showed it to them, that you exist. And I believe any person on the face of this planet who looks into the creation and says there must be a creator who made all this, I want to know him. I believe, Lord, if you have to send an angel from heaven to share the gospel with them, you will. Because nobody will ever go to hell that wants to know you but lacks the information. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.